News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it time for Canada to take a different approach in its relationship with the United States? That's the question that many people are asking, given what we have seen going on lately. I mean, Canada barely got a mention this week when the U.S. announced plans to ease travel restrictions with a number of other countries, including the European Union, United Kingdom, China and India. Our land border remains closed. Canadians can still fly into the United States, but we haven't really seen a lot of progress on that front. Well, to talk more about this, our Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini joins us now. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So Canada was very conspicuously not mentioned, it seems like. Well, yes, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, this was a relaxing of the travel restrictions for members of the EU and the UK and other foreign nations uh, to allow them to fly into the United States. Remember, Canadians have been allowed to fly into the United States for the last X number of months without any problem. So this is kind of bringing the rest of the world into where Canadians are allowed to be when it comes to flying. The reason that the land border is still closed is because there is a public health measure that's being used called Title 42, which keeps the northern and southern land borders closed. So while the announcement was to allow for international flights to resume, the CDC and the Biden administration are still extending a Trump era policy that stops land crossings. Right. And I think you also just kind of hit the nail on the head there where you said they can't just open the northern border. It has to be the northern and southern border at the same time. Yeah, and look, there's a lot of kind of uh, logistics and legalities that need to kind of go into this uh, thought process here. Title 42 essentially says that anybody crossing a land border brings a public health threat with them, and they're using the pandemic as kind of an overarching umbrella here to keep these rules in place. The Trump administration put that policy in place to kind of curb immigration, to kind of keep those, uh, you know, strengthened and, and often pushed back on immigration policies in place to stop those caravans from coming up and crossing the border at Mexico. So Title 42 allowed them to do that, but it had to be unilateral because uh, it's considered, you know, both land borders might be different, but they're under the same policy. CBP is in uh, control of monitoring them. So it really becomes difficult to remove one set of restrictions one place and leave them in another place. Reggie, would you say that countries like Canada, perhaps others, I know the European Union has been and the UK has been kind of surprised by how strict the US continues to be on some of these issues? I think that there is a kind of more broad conversation, maybe that the United States is being strict, but more so that the United States is not being transparent when it comes to what it's actually looking for in order to kind yes. of bring itself into the, you know, the place that every other country is in that they're now allowing Americans to come in. If the Biden administration is using Title 42 as a way to try and say, look, we want to control immigration at the southern border, there have been conversations. Why not just put a presidential executive order in place then to stop travel from certain countries? Uh, making it more difficult uh, to, to cross in, but giving CBP an opportunity to check the credentials of people as they cross. There's There are questions as to what is actually going on here, and there is rightfully uh, anger coming from both Republicans and Democrats, the senators from Washington State, the senators from Idaho, the senators from New Hampshire, calling on the Biden administration to at least open up and say what it is that they plan to do. Right. Still no kind of requirements. Like, we don't know what, what measurements we have to hit, right, to get the border open. 
Yeah, and and you have to remember when when planes are landing in the United States, the uh, information when it comes to checking uh, vaccine passports, that's all handled by the airlines themselves. That's not handled by Customs and Border Protection. So CBP doesn't have that kind of ability, nor have they been trained to be able to look at that. So if that's not having it at airports, it's hard to see how they're just going to implement that at land borders, which again opens up the call. How do you move forward if you're not even starting from point one? Right. So when do these rules change then for the United States and these other countries? So flights will allow to be uh, uh, entering from other nations, uh, you know, foreign nations uh, starting in November. What's important to note here is that when Jeff Zients made these comments, the White House COVID response coordinator, he says this starts in November. They're still trying to put some kind of policies in place to ensure that this goes off without a hitch. He made a specific point of saying this does not change the policy at the land border. So the rest of the world can now fly in just like Canadians. There's just going to be no opportunity here or there has been no opportunity to discuss how this is going to work uh, uh, with the land borders. So there just continues to be this this kind of circular anger. The rest of the world can come in. Canadians can come in. You just have to do it the more expensive way. Right. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. We're feeling it this morning because it is the first day of fall, which strangely enough for us around here means it's our favorite season. I know not everybody feels that way. Let's find out how Raji Sohal feels. Raji, what is the best (laughs) season of the year? Oh, that's not fair. The best season of the year is right now when it's the end of summer and early fall. That's That's not a season. No, there's only four, Raji. You got to pick one of the four. No, it's not. It's a season. I've got my one foot in one season and one in the other. I'm like, you know, eating the last of the local fruits that I shouldn't be that you're like, this is no longer in season. Let the plum go, Raji. Let the plum (laughs) go. But I am using it in my pies right now. I'm still doing picnics. And I'm bringing, you know, a blanket to bundle up in, but we're going to do sandcastles at the beach in the next couple of days. We're going to do the after dinner walks, but I know that soon it's going to be crunchy leaves, which I love when, you know, you're biking through the leaves or going for a walk and you, you see the reds and yellows um, all around you. The mountains look gorgeous in fall. I love that. But you know what I'm most, most excited about with fall? What? It is to the chance to wear real clothes. Yes. <laughs> I love the idea of turning on my oven and starting to bake again and doing all sorts of good stuff. But yeah, I actually had to think the other day when it was pouring rain on Friday, I had to stop and think as I was heading out the door, where's my jacket? Like, when was the last time I saw (laughs) my jacket? jacket? Yeah. Where do I dig that out from? So yes, the chance to start wearing some jackets again. Yeah, I just recently realized this. I don't know how because it's been the case my entire life. But I am the cardigan queen. I have cardigans in every single color, just like a very old lady. I hey, no matter hey, what the hey. outfit is. Watch yourself you right wear? there. Yeah, don't say that. Like people <laughs> of all ages love a good cardigan, okay, Raji? <laughs> I adore my cardigans and I'm my kids are still at that age where they let me dress them quite often so it's mostly in hand-me-downs at my sister she she lives in the UK and she's got kids a little bit older and every time she visits she brings their clothes and those become my children's wardrobe so um, they love their cardigans over there my kids watch Mr. Rogers they love wearing their cardigans here I love my cardigans and I had I had no idea whether like people actually still wear cardigans of course they do no, they don't. 
they don't. I look around me at the shops. They're not selling cardigans. And I look at the other children on the playground. They are not wearing cardigans. No, 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 no. Let's be clear. They just call it something else now, okay? <laughs> uh, go on to like it? a Lulu, Lululemon website or whatever, and you'll, they call them wraps or they call them like there's something else that they call them. But essentially, they are cardigans. No, wraps are not cardigans. And surely uh, what other people are wearing have like zippers. And no, I'm talking about like a, a little bit of a wool blend, button front, soft cardigan. <laughs> Obviously, you're, it's the technical interpretation of what you call that because that's not what I would, I would call anything that is like a sweater-like garment that you wear that is open, but you wear it over other stuff. That's okay. that's to me is a cardigan. Okay, I'm going to be eyes open this season, Simi Sarah, and looking out for whether other people are actually wearing cardigans as much as I am. Well, it's a staple of course you over won't here. see it because they'll be wearing them at home. That's what we do, I, oh, or under their jackets. There you go. Yes. No, I'm very excited about fall. Um, and I love to bake, as you know. And it's funner to bake in the fall when you get. Did to you just use say funner? Yes, more fun. <laughs> it is more fun to bake in the fall when you get to use these excellent warm spices like cardamom and loads of cinnamon, um, which I just end up putting in everything. And I don't like the appropriation of all that stuff being called pumpkin spice because it's not all pumpkin spice. I might not use the entire concoction, all the options of those warm spices. So I prefer to keep pumpkin spice out of the debate. Oh boy. Okay. So you, you've got a lot of strong thoughts and feelings this morning, Rachi. So just on fall, Simi, I feel clearly. like when winter comes, like I have no opinions anymore and I'm just perpetually cold. <laughs> hmm. This is that season in between seasons. So your for you, fall is your favorite season? It's fair to say. It's fair to say that I'm basic enough that fall is adored around here. I love fall. Hmm. Even as a kid, because I feel like for, for me, I loved it because, well, it's Halloween and Halloween is my birthday. So as a kid, that was just like the most magical time of year. But I know for a lot of kids, it means like, oh, end of freedom and back to school. So is it only adults who love fall, do you think? Oh, I think a lot of kids are excited about going back to school. They're, and kids don't want to admit it but what they or know it really. I don't think they really realize it. But routines give us so much more purpose in life. And it's just nice to know what's coming next. Whereas in summer, my kids would wake up and be like, ooh, what's up today? We have no idea. And uh, <laughs> it's just so it's nice that now it's, yeah, it's dark at night now. So uh, at least too. in my household, my children know that, oh, it's dark. It's time to go to sleep. Whereas in the summer, it was very confusing because uh, it was just bright and sunny outside when they were told to go to bed. Read your books and go to bed, huh? It's totally beautiful outside. Why oh, would no. I do that? Let's see, so till midnight, mom. Well, let's see. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people might disagree with us, even though we all seem to be in agreement around here that fall is the best season. People can weigh in on that. Simi at cknw.com. We'll see what they have to say. Thanks, Raji. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Soha. We'll be checking back in with her a little bit later. But yes, today is the first day of fall. Is it not the greatest season? I think it is. If you want to argue with me, absolutely. Let me know what your favorite season is. This is Mornings with Simi. When it comes to women who are pregnant and the COVID-19 vaccine, she really wanted to make an effort to debunk the myth 
that pregnant women are at risk if they take the vaccine because, to be honest, she said, there are too many unvaccinated pregnant women in hospital right now. So what has made some of these pregnant women hesitant to get the shot? Well, joining us now is Dr. Anna Wallach, family physician and assistant professor at UBC, also a member of Masks for BC and Masks for Canada. Dr. Wallach, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me. What did you think when you heard Dr. Henry making that plea yesterday? It was good to hear it from Dr. Henry because the message does need to get out there. A lot of physicians on social media, we've all been trying to get it out there, but now we need we need it to be quite broad and quite more far-reaching because, frankly, if you are pregnant and you get COVID and you are unvaccinated, you are at a higher risk of serious complications, ending up in ICU, having uh, premature labor, and dying. So, so it's it's really quite urgent at the moment because hospitals are filling up with unvaccinated pregnant women. Um, it's really quite urgent to to get the message out. Dr. Wallach, I'm so curious about this because when you're pregnant, and I've been through this twice myself, I mean, you are very connected to the healthcare system for the most part. You, you know, you get your blood tests, you, you get your regular checkups, you do all those things. So with that connection to the healthcare system, how are women not having that discussion with their family doctor? It's really hard at the moment to speak above the noise of social media. Um, not just social media, but other chatter that's going around. There's, I'm hearing it, and I'm even hearing it from, from my own friends. And people are talking about, well, you know, they hear that the vaccine can cost this, the vaccine can cost that. And the, it preys on the anxiety that every pregnant woman, every pregnant person has, actually. Because when you're pregnant, your number one concern is to protect your baby. And so, you know, that, that, that mama bear instinct kicks in. Right. And you want to do everything you can to protect your baby. And so when you hear, um, you know, you, you see your doctor once every four weeks, then once every two weeks. And even if we try to get the message across to you, when you're hearing every day bombarded on the news or on, like I said, from your friends about how this could be dangerous, then, you know, the primal instinct kicks in. So that's why we're trying to get the message out there as well. So how do we do that then? Because you're saying they're getting it from social media, they're getting it from all over the place. Is talking about it publicly going to be enough to push back? Not talking about it publicly is the start. Um, doctors, um, all of us family physicians, um, the obstetricians, everybody's trying to talk about it. The ICU critical care doctors, everybody is talking about it. As um, somebody who is not in the healthcare system, if you personally know somebody who is pregnant, bring it up, ask them, are you vaccinated? Have that conversation. Your con- your one conversation may not be the deciding factor, but it'll open the conversation. And if everybody is asking every pregnant woman they know, every pregnant person they know, um, if they are vaccinated or ask them to talk to their, their midwife, their family physician, their doula, their obstetrician, ask them to talk to them, then hopefully we're able to, to change the conversation around this. Do we need to talk more about the statistics here too, Dr. Wallach, because we know how like how many pregnant, unvaccinated women are in hospital right now? 
We do. It needs to be brought out because, like I said, we need to appeal to to the primal instinct that's there, the need to protect to protect your child. Um, there are increased risks to to the baby. There, we are seeing an increased risk of premature births. We are seeing an increased risk of of miscarriages. This is in pregnant people who are unvaccinated. The we need to dispel the rumors that this is related to the vaccine because those statistics are not seen in the vaccinated pregnant population. Okay, so obviously do we need to talk more about pushing it out to the community that you talked about there too? The obstetricians, the midwives, the doulas, like this this needs to be a conversation with that group of people. I believe it is out there. I see it. I see it. It's clearly my social media feed is different from other people's social media feed and doctors are desperately trying to get this out there. We have we have doctors who are talking about how they're they're crying with their patients because they want them to know just how important it is because we the 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 statistics are looking different in that we are seeing them dying. We are seeing pregnant people dying, and this is not what we want to see. Pregnant people should not be dying from um, from from COVID. It's it's just some. It's one of those preventable deaths, yeah. and it's a vaccine preventable death, and that is what is hurting the medical community at the moment. That we know it is preventable. It is so remarkable to me because when you're pregnant, there's all this other advice that you take from your doctor. Right. You automatically listen to your doctor about so many things. Why not this? This is something that's baffled us throughout the entire throughout the entire pandemic. But I've been talking about vaccine hesitancy forever because we also see it with kids like you want to protect your kids. Um, from 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 anything and having to have the conversation with vaccine about vaccine hesitancy, I've been doing it for years, and it's it always baffles me. And I say, you take my advice about everything else. Why not this? So that's the plea from physicians, midwives, everywhere, every, anyone who's looking after any pregnant patients. Please, please, please go out and get vaccinated, not just for yourself, but also for your unborn child. Well, we'll see what happens. I hope people hear that. Dr. Wallach, thank you for your time. Thank you. That is Dr. Anna Wallach, family physician and assistant professor at UBC, member of Masks for BC, talking about the getting the message through to pregnant women about vaccination. 40, 40 pregnant women have received intensive care in BC in a hospital in the last few months because they are unvaccinated and they contracted COVID-19. So where is that disconnect, right? When you're pregnant, you go to the doctor, you take doctor's advice about everything. Need me to take a test? I'll take that test. Need me to get blood work? I will get that blood work. Oh, you want me to take these vitamins, eat this food, don't eat you know, fish, don't eat this? Yeah, okay, I'll do all those things. But then they're not doing this? Where is that gap in information coming from? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. According to the BC Conservation Service, four coyotes were trapped and euthanized during the Stanley Park closure just in the last, well, couple of weeks. And before that, there had been seven other coyotes that the park board had gone in and euthanized. So in total, about 11 coyotes over the last six months or so have been removed from Stanley Park. 
this was a, not an entirely uncontroversial thing about getting in there, trapping and euthanizing coyotes. There is a new Insights West poll out this morning that asked people how they feel on this topic. And it turns out right across the province, there is support for this. A majority of BC residents, 59% said they support capturing and euthanizing coyotes in Stanley Park. When you get down to the city of Vancouver, even more people support it. Joining us now to talk more about this poll is Steve Mossop, the president of Insights West. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. This is such an interesting uh, question to ask people. So when you got into the city of Vancouver specifically, how did people feel about this topic? Well, really almost the opposite of what we thought they would feel. Um, And you've seen the blow up on social media and the commentary that's been happening around our province. It's not just limited to the city of Vancouver. Everybody all over the province is talking about this. And for the most part, there's been a lot of criticism towards the city and the Ministry of the Environment. And here we have our poll, you know, definitively saying, no, um, the majority actually support the decision to call the coyotes in the park. So yeah, 71% within the city of Vancouver. That's a really high number. It was really high. And, and this, I, I thought it would have been the opposite. The city of Vancouver, uh, you know, just how we feel about different issues versus the rest of Metro Vancouver, I would have thought that the support would be lower in, in, in the city specifically. So it did catch us uh, by a little bit of surprise. Yeah, I I was kind of surprised too by the lower kind of provincial number on this. So you also asked people about how they feel on the issue of the kind of job that the park board has been doing. And I thought, oh, this must be interesting. Tell us about that. Well, again, you know, as a pollster, you, you always try and guess what the public might be thinking. And you put a question out there and you expect a result and you get something that's completely different. And I would have thought with all of the criticism that they faced uh, in media and just, uh, again, social media commentary, that people would have been a lot harder on the city. But actually, they're divided. So um, if you look at residents of the city of Vancouver, 41% think the Parks Board has done a good job and 40% think it's done a bad job. So it's a bit split. And the Ministry of Environment uh, fares a little bit better on the scores. But I would have thought that there would be uh, a little bit more public criticism on that. Okay, but there was a lot of agreement, and I'd like to see this, on what we should do about people who, who feed the wildlife. Well, you know, we presented a number of alternatives rather than the call. And at the top of the list, uh, 69% believe that we should find people who feed wildlife and leave food around in the park. And that's, you know, it's a pretty overwhelming majority as well. Um, and two-thirds believe that we should just take better care of the park overall by eliminating garbage in the park. And uh, 50% say we should increase the public education. So they're all... Uh, other alternatives to the call that people support, but at the end of the day, um, you know, people thought we should do something. There's very few that said, "Don't let let's just, let's just leave them be." And and again, overwhelmingly, people support the decision that was made, as tough as it was for the the park sport to do that. Right, and you broke it down by gender too. Well, that was surprising too. You know, here we have seventy uh, percent of males uh, support the action, compared to only fifty percent of females, and so the majority of uh, uh, people who are against the uh, uh, proposition are, are female. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Is it, it, does this happen to you often, Steve, though, where you kind of run a topic like this by people and you get a result that is different than what you thought you were going to get? Oh, my. Uh, you know, it doesn't happen very often. I, I've been polling for nearly 30 years and have a pretty good sense of where the public sentiment is. But every once in a while, and this is one of them where uh, just a bit surprised about the level of support that we saw. And you even broke it down by political party. Tell us about that. Well, that, and I, and I said here, maybe that's not a, su- a surprise, but green voters uh, and NDP voters are more likely to oppose the call. So green voters, almost 50% are, are opposed to it. And 30% of NDP voters 
but only 20% of uh, liberal voters are against it. So fascinating. Steve, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Steve Mossett, president of Insights West, asking people, what percentage of you out there support the recent actions by the city, you know, by the park board, by the BC Conservation Service to trap and euthanize coyotes in Stanley Park? And some really interesting numbers. The majority of BC residents overall, 59%, support the idea of the cull of coyotes in Stanley Park, but the number was even higher for the city of Vancouver, which Steve is right. I was surprised by that too, because you would think the opposite, right? 71% of people that they surveyed in the city of Vancouver said they support that action too. So not at all what you expected. What about you? Do you feel better about now perhaps visiting Stanley Park or going to Stanley Park? Do you support what they did there? Uh, They now say the conservation service that they trapped and euthanized uh, before coyotes. That's just in the last few weeks during the Stanley Park closures. They had done seven, the park board had, you know, periodically in the months before that. So in total, 11 coyotes have been trapped and euthanized in the last six months or so. And they're saying people can go back to the park, still don't feed the wildlife, don't engage, and just, you know, watch out. But do you support the actions that they have taken or not? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Still waiting for things to shake out for a couple of seats here in Metro Vancouver that are still too close to call. One in Richmond, Vancouver Granville is another one. The, of course, mail-in ballots are going to be finished, hopefully, today as Elections Canada gets underway with that verification and counting process. So yeah, still waiting to find those out. But here's what we do know. We do know that the Green Party of Canada won two seats on Monday. We've got Mike Morris who took Kitchener Centre and Elizabeth May getting her seat back once again in Saanich Gulf Islands. But by all accounts, the Green Party did not do well in this election. So what happened? Joining us now is Elizabeth May, Green Party MP for Saanich Gulf Islands and of course, former leader of the party. Thank you for being here this morning. Thanks, Simi. And of course, I have to say right away that one of those other two close-to-call races is Nanaimo Ladysmith. So Paul Manley, I still, you know, I'm fingers crossed, but uh, there well could be three of us going back to Parliament. Right. But you had a couple days now to kind of look at the results and see what happened. What do you think went wrong for the Green Party this time? Well, as former leader, it would be wrong for me to to proclaim on various things. Uh, We, as a party, we always review election results after the election. Uh, And there's also an automatic leadership review. There's a lot of questions that I have about certain factors that are clear in terms of a very significant drop in our popular vote. And one of those was not having a full slate. We've had a full slate since. Oh, my gosh. The first full slate for the Green Party was in 2004. And every election thereafter, we've had as full a slate as they every now and then the liberals or the conservatives have to pull someone after the election has started. But we've been on that scale of, of virtually a full slate every time. This This was... A surprise to me as someone who's not, you know, in the inner circle that's, that we were at the point where signatures have to be in and elections candidates says these are the candidates. I, I, I certainly am going to be looking for answers as to what, what went wrong in the nominations process, which is internal party stuff. But we've got to figure out how that happened. And of course, um, you, you can look at it a number of different ways. If Obviously, if Annamie Paul had won in Toronto Centre, everyone would be saying what a brilliant strategy. 
Uh, and so there's questions that will, I'm sure, be asked about, well, should she have traveled more? Um, and I'm torn on that because obviously, as, um, I say obviously, it's obvious to me, but as former leader, I, I was made leader, of, I, elected, I was elected leader of the Green Party in 2006 and went five years and one failed by-election attempt and another uh, national leadership, national campaign without winning a seat. It's not easy. And part of the reason that I've had difficulties winning a seat uh, back in um, between 2006 and 2011 was that the party wanted me to travel the country and boost the campaigns elsewhere. And it took a lot to persuade um, the um, and it's always volunteers that are part of a system that runs the party on behalf of the members and then some of the paid staff and everybody's saying, well, we need right. you out there to help others. So it's, it's a, there'll, there'll be a lot of questions to be answered about that. Yeah. Do you think that's been part of the problem, though, as well, is that people expected just the growth to continue to continue, but they forget how long it took the Green Party to even get to this particular place? Yes, but I, I think this will be a blip and we'll recover quickly. Uh, there's there's no question in my mind that public support for the issues we've been raising has never been higher. We, you know, I'm, I'm obviously distressed as our, our candidates and our volunteers and and the membership and, and the leader has not yet spoken to her, her plans. She didn't do any media interviews yesterday and I'm, I don't know what her, what her intention is for what she'll do next, but there's no question but that it was a very, very poor result, and we we need to learn from it. There's some very obvious things that change, but we will continue to grow, as we will in, the, in British Columbia, which is a separate party, completely separate Green Party of British Columbia, uh, led by Sonia Firstnow, who's so magnificent. If we had, you know, we, we have to continue to do well federally in order to make sure that, that the Greens elsewhere benefit from... Uh, the growth that is definitely in the in, but, in the public conversation. Right. You talk about, though, a lot of what you're talking about is an internal party issue, as you said. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot of people, though, that that involves. That's not just one person. That's not just no. the leader who makes a lot of those decisions. So what does that say about what's going on with the machinery of the Green Party at a national level? Well, I would never have described the Green Party as having machinery because it was sort of, I used to say when I was leader, like the other parties, have kind of their, you know, their, their, their tanks and they're at a rollabout in election time. And we have this little tiny wagon we pull behind us. But uh, what it does say is that I'm personally distressed at the very negative media coverage that went on for months. Some of it was legitimate, like losing Jenica Atwin, our New Brunswick, uh, Fredericton, uh, Green MP, was really painful. And it happened. But after that happened, there was a lot in the media that simply wasn't true. And it came from unnamed sources and, I don't know, people from Greens who managed to get reporters to believe them that they had a scoop of some kind. That was really damaging to our reputation. Uh, without a doubt. But it was happening, ca- though, wasn't it? Elizabeth? No, no, like it was still no, happening no. behind the scenes. It was just being no, leaked out. No, no, it wasn't happening. There was a lot reported that was just factually incorrect based on unnamed sources. You didn't come out and say that at the time. Well, the leader asked uh, us not to comment on internal party matters. And I also recognized, as did Paul Manley, that if we were to be talking about what an unnamed source said that we knew wasn't true, the unnamed source could continue to say other stuff that wasn't true. So we, we, we felt it was just that it was gossipy stuff. I mean, I'll give you one example. It was covered in the national media as though our executive director 
had an axe to grind against the leader and therefore singled out people in her office for layoffs. But no, the, the party's unionized. Layoffs, when they have to happen, and they did have to happen, have to follow the collective agreement. Everybody would have understood that. But to say the executive director is targeting her enemies, that was covered in the Globe and Mail as if it was true. These things did us a lot of damage. And they and I don't know where so, those stories came from, but I want to find out. So where does the party go from here? And you know what? Are you going to be more vocal moving forward about what's going on? I have been respecting um, Annemie Paul's wishes on that. I'm talking to you now more freely because the election is over, but she's also asked me not to do any national media interviews. Um, she has to she has to speak for herself without Mike Morris or me or Paul Manley or others saying what we think. And I also do respect the fact that the party's membership is fundamentally the highest level of authority in the party is not the leader, it's the members of the party. And there, there, there's definitely a reckoning to be had. And yes, I will, to the extent I think it's appropriate, raise the issues for others to explore. How did that happen? Can we find out if those were people who uh, were, what was their agenda, and do we know who they are, who created the impression? There was certainly disagreement. There's always been disagreement in the Green Party, uh, and in any other political party, but it, it, uh, it, it became a kind of flavor of the month thing that anything anybody wanted, they wanted to get themselves uh, uh, in the national media. They just had to come up with a terrible story about how much we were fighting with each other, when that, from my perspective, wasn't the case. So we have to rebuild, and we have to have an honest accounting of how things went so badly. We should have picked up many more seats. I'm very grateful to be reelected in Saanich Gulf Islands, and I believe Paul Manley, you know, as I said, those, the, it's an interesting thing that hasn't come up in the media to me, that of all the um, races across the country where uh, the the, the so-called special ballots, advance polling, the, the mail-in ballots and the special ballots, uh, the highest level of those kinds of ballots anywhere in Canada were on Vancouver Island. They were in Victoria and uh, Saanich Gulf Islands and in Imo Ladysmith. So we had an uncommonly high percentage of voters in our ridings who chose that early vote route. And so I'm, that's why I am still optimistic that Paul Manley will be reelected and we'll all be going to Ottawa together. But there's a lot of rebuilding and reckoning to be had. And I'm, um, you know, I, uh, I can't say I'm looking forward to it, but I sure want to clear the air, rebuild and be ready for the next election and not repeat the mistakes of this one. All right. We'll see what happens. Lots of work there. Elizabeth May, thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Elizabeth May is a Green Party MP for Saanich Gulf Islands talking about the woes that have befallen the Green Party these days. People do tend to forget there was a lot of talk and criticism about Annamie Paul and how many times she's tried to get that seat in that one particular riding. People forget how many times Elizabeth May also ran before she eventually was elected in the Saanich Gulf Islands. Uh, We're talking several times over a period of five years that she tried in different parts of the country before getting that particular seat. So yeah, it seems to me just listening to that, a lot of work that the Green Party has. This is Mornings with Simi. I think it's something that we've really come to learn in recent years, and that is that 
kids all learn differently. Some of them are visual learners. Some of them are not. Some of them need to do it through memorization. It is an ongoing challenge in the education system to be able to help kids learn in the best way they possibly can. Well, our Raji Sohal is with us now to talk about a new innovative program that helps some kids learn in their own unique way. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you really nailed it. Uh, We are coming to understand better every day that children uh, learn differently. And every classroom comes with challenges. We know teachers have way too many students. I just uh, had a very real run in with that reality as my uh, child has started kindergarten. And I was, Simi, still thinking about the days when I was in kindergarten and there were, oh, I don't know, 12 kids in the classroom, uh, more than double that now. And uh, teachers are overwhelmed. So kids do need that extra support, especially uh, Especially, we know during the pandemic was super hard on kids. But what about kids with learning differences? Um, Kids with learning differences have been in many ways forgotten. I'm hearing it from other parents. I'm reading it on forums, the frustration that their children are not getting what they need. Well, there is this really cool new program uh, that is being launched as we speak. And it's by the uh, Learning Disability Society. They've basically come up with a mobile classroom. So what that means is they have uh, furnished a minibus to look really amazing. It's been uh, done up in artwork by a local artist. And then inside are these kind of like little three little learning module areas. It's super bright and colorful. And basically, they drive out to kids who need that uh, access to these extra services, one-on-one time, um, help with uh, learning in math, science, all kinds of topics. So I talked to the LDS Access, uh, the society, the Learning Disability Society, and uh, Jennifer Fain, who's with them, told me that a program like this, it's essential. It couldn't come at a better time. Low-income families face extraordinary barriers in accessing one-to-one support for their students, both in being able to travel to a learning center or an instructor and in, and affording that program. Private tutoring costs between two to $5,000 per year on average per child, which is simply money that many families in greater Vancouver, where the cost of living is high, do not have. Families are able to access our services regardless of their geographical location and their family income, which is life-changing for for so many families. Oh, Raji, I can't even tell you how much I feel this because having gone through a lot of issues with one of my kids in terms of how he learned and how we could best address that and the frustration, oh, I, I can't even imagine how great this must be for some parents and kids. Yeah, you know, I've been talking to parents whose children with learning differences uh, have just felt like they are drowning in the school system. And these are not these are not kids. I'm not going to say that they're not smart. They're very smart. They're smart in different ways. They um, are totally capable of learning. They just need some tweaks here and there. They need the information delivered in a different way. And it's amazing that a program like this is trying to serve in that way. Also, Simi, the minibus, this mobile classroom, it's run on clean energy. Like they're trying to pay attention to every single detail about it. And when kids get on board, I'm sure they're going to have fun. We know that for so many kids with learning differences, there is 
the stigma just with school and education and learning in general, like it's very, just those words alone are very triggering for those kids and for their families and any way to just break it down, make it more human, make it fun is just so welcome. Our program supports children in building confidence and self-esteem so that they actually want to learn and can continue to learn and move back towards catching up to grade level and feeling successful in their schooling experiences. You know, once and that confidence, what, Simi, is and that's, key, right? That's exactly what I was just about to say. Like once a child <laughs> feels a little bit of confidence, like, oh, I can do this or, oh, look, I'm good at this. Oh, man, the snowballing mm-hmm. effect is huge. Yeah. And when there's that sense of ownership that like, this is my education and it's allowed to happen a little bit in the way that I need it to in order to feel confident in moving forward with this. I mean, when I talk to parents whose kids have learning differences and they have felt supported and they have watched their child thrive when supported, it is just a totally different kid, totally different school experience. You know, you're making me, um, you're making me have like deja vu and go through some memories that I thought that I had buried <laughs> because my child had so many learning differences. And it was one of those things where as a parent, you know, you go to those parent-teacher interactions and you start to dread them. Because it's just going to be, what am I doing? Like, what, how are we failing this poor child? What, how are we, like, what's going on? And it wasn't until about, oh, must have been grade 12, that I went to a parent-teacher conference where um, the, the teacher said to me, hey, you know what? Um, yeah, he's actually doing really well. I don't think we have a lot to go over. I burst into <laughs> tears. Like, I cried at oh. the parent-teacher conference because I couldn't believe it. But it is that sense of relief for parents to know, like, if you can find something that your child clicks with, boy, how great mm-hmm. is that? Absolutely. Yeah. And this minibus, it's so cool. They also will operate on a Saturday. So for some families who, who just after school or, you know, during the school, they don't want to pull their kid out of school uh, to spend some time on it um, one-on-one with, with a teacher, with an instructor, they can have the minibus come to them on a Saturday, which is just phenomenal. So right now the Learning Disability Society is inviting uh, people, institutions, organizations, individuals uh, to check out their website. And if this is something that appeals to you, uh, to your family, to get in touch and see how you can work out uh, using this awesome service. I just love this, Simi. I love that in general as a society, we are not expecting anymore for everyone to operate and learn it in exactly the same way and that we are finally being sensitive to the fact that people have differences. Right. But they must have a huge amount of demand though, Raji. How do they deal with that? Yeah, they do. And uh, again, this is a brand new program that's launching, but they already know that there's a huge demand for it. So I I imagine there's going to be a lot of scheduling, uh, interesting gymnastics there. But I also feel that uh, just getting the word out more might get uh, them another minibus. This one um, was costly, but it came together with various donations and uh, they're always accepting more. So this can be all over the Lower Mainland, that they will come to you. Yeah, it will be. And uh, they've already done kind of a pilot project period. So they have worked with some libraries. And what they've seen in the pilot project is that kids are thrilled. They're just thrilled. I mean, the environment itself is really fun. And you can go on their website and get a little tour of the minibus there. So it's colorful. It's bright. It's just fun. It's like how novel for a kid to just like, uh, you know, get on a bus and get one on one with some some learning. So that aspect of it is really fun. But then also, uh, yeah, it's accessible in that it comes out to different locations, which is super. And they've so far seen that kids do love it. Where can people get more information? 
So you'll want to check out the Learning Disabilities Society's website. And uh, the program's brand new, launching now, lots of interest in it. And uh, you can take a tour. There's a little video online that you can tour it with and um, get some more information on their website. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. What a great program. That is our Raji Sohal talking about a mobile learning classroom for kids. I just think that they would love that just because what a neat idea, just going out to the driveway or out to the curb to learn in a mobile classroom. You know how kids are. They love stuff like that.